Let's see what the stew has for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, the Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. Today we have a little bit of a special break here. Instead of Angie, you have me, Jared, the review gnome, and I'll be doing an interview for you today. Hi, today I am very happy to have a special guest interview for the Gnomecast. Mystery guest, would you please uh, introduce yourself and remind our listeners where they may know you from? Hi, I am Keith Baker. I am best known as the creator of the Eberron campaign setting for Dungeons and Dragons. I've also created the card game Gloom. And with my company Together Studios, I have created the games Illimat, Phoenix Dawn Command, and will be releasing the Adventure Zone Bureau of Balance later this year. That is awesome. I am so glad. Uh, thank you so much for being on today. So today, we're primarily going to be looking at something that just came out that you worked on. Do you mind mentioning what that might be? Uh, well, that would be Exploring Eberron, which is a book that we just released on the DMs Guild, both in print-on-demand, so you can get it in hardcover and as PDF. It's a book I've been working on for the last year, and it's my first major unofficial, you know, Eberron source book and covers a whole lot of interesting things that I haven't had a chance to write in an official source book. I am really excited to get a chance to talk to you about this. So on that note, do you mind if we uh, get into some questions here? No, please do. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. So how long have you wanted to touch on some of these topics that you detailed in Exploring Eberron? Uh, with some of them, since Eberron began from the very beginning. So we're talking around 15 years. Uh, certainly with Aquatic Civilizations, my original submission of Eberron included some of the details about that in that first story bible. And certainly the planes were something that we developed, the unique planar cosmology we developed during the creation of the initial Eberron campaign setting, but then never had a real opportunity to dig into that unique cosmology. And I always wanted to see a Plains of Eberron book. This isn't quite that, but it's a Plains of Eberron chapter, so it's a start. <laughs> Early on, when um, I think back when the Explorer's Guide to Eberron came out, I heard some people kind of wondering if the conceptual drift from 3.5's Magic Economy to 5th edition was going to translate well in 5e. And one of the things that I noticed in Exploring Eberron is there's a lot that seems to kind of... Uh, utilize the idea that like mage rights and spellcasters that aren't PCs don't really need to use the same rules. Do you think that more narrative approach to NPC magic provides better or worse expression of how you envision wide magic in Eberron? It, it's a, a, you know, sort of an interesting question because Eberron was designed for 3.5 D&D, but on the other hand, in part, that's because that's what existed. I have to say that the Vancian magic approach never really made sense for Eberron, and we always kind of just ignored it a little. Uh, basically, it was always a little weird that a mage rite, who is theoretically a professional arcane locksmith, could cast arcane lock twice per day and then they're done. And you're sort of like, how is that a job? You know, oh, come back tomorrow and I'll do two more. And so ritual magic, you know, which first appeared in fourth edition, immediately even in fourth, I was like, oh, this is better because it basically turns magic into time and money. That mm -hmm. if that, uh, that 
Arcane Locksmith costs him 10 gold and takes 10 minutes to, to cast Arcane Lock. He charges you 20 and he can do six in an hour if you've got time and money. Mm-hmm. And that always made more sense with the idea that for some people, this is a job. The way it worked in fourth had its own problems. So honestly, again, I think with fifth edition, the use of rituals, even though, again, we change up, we say, well, mage rites cast all their spells as rituals, but the use of rituals and the use of cantrips is another thing that really fits Eberron actually better than third edition. This is where we actually get to have wand slingers, which is a concept I always wanted in Eberron, <laughs> but again, it didn't work with straight Vancian magic. So first off, I think in general, the magic system of fifth actually is a better match to the concept of Eberron. Second, the idea that player characters and NPCs don't have to follow the same rules also is better for Eberron. In third edition, we did play with the basic idea that NPCs usually used NPC classes, which were a thing in the DM's guide that most people ignored. Uh But it's simpler to just say, no, they just do what the story needs them to do and not try to make them follow the same rules. Yeah, I really, I, I, when I was reading it, it does make so much more sense that, you know, it's not somebody pulling together raw magic to throw fireball. This is somebody that does this on a reliable basis on a small, predictable scale, you know? And, and it's basically that idea of what we've always said is that player characters are remarkable. And the point to me of a mage right is we can say, well, the mage right, that arcane locksmith can cast arcane lock as a ritual, which player character can't. And he can cast it 10 times a day if he's got the time and the, the components. And on the one hand, you can say, oh, why, why, if he can do that, why can't I? But the idea is, oh, because he spent five years learning to do that. <laughs> Meanwhile, your wizard can just grab a spell book and tomorrow know a new spell. Yeah. And like, he's just like, what? You know, I mean, like, it's, it's that it's a different kind of skill. Yeah. Where player characters are more about, I'm incredibly versatile and I'm a sort of savant. And the mage right is, well, this is what it looks like if you spend five years practicing one spell. Oh, yeah, I, I really like that. Something that I personally have considered is a uh, strength of Eberron is that it approaches canon in a unique fashion. And it's not just the fact that the novels are something that could happen, but aren't necessarily assumed to have happened. But it's even in how certain things are presented in the books where you will present, you know, this might be the truth behind this thing, but it might be another thing. And even within the history of the setting itself, there isn't an absolute surety of what has happened in history. There are conjectures from people, but it's still open-ended. Is that something that you always had in mind for Eberron, or is that something that was kind of a Wizards of the Coast idea for approaching the setting? It's something that I originally, I think I first encountered it as a player and writer with uh, the first game I actually published material for was the role-playing game Over the Edge by Atlas Games. Mm -hmm. And I encountered it, and that's John Nephew and Jonathan Tweet, I think, the the original edition. And uh, it was first there that that's a game that was very much sort of Illuminati, X-Files, a lot of conspiracy elements, and that there were a couple of the conspiracies where in describing the conspiracies, they said, well, it could be this or it could be that. And I was like, I love that. <laughs> and to me, the whole point of role-playing games is that it is an opportunity for you and your friends to create a unique story that 
no one else is going to experience. That compared to a movie where we're watching someone else's idea or a book where, you know, I've written novels and it's just my, my concept, that when we sit down, we are making something that makes sense to us. And with that in mind, I've always wanted a setting to be something that is a source of inspiration rather than limitation. That this should give you ideas and you can say, ooh, but if I was doing it, I'd do blank, not, oh, I can't do that though, because the setting says whatever. I love the fact that I've been working on Eberron for 15 years, and yet if I sit down and play in a campaign you are running, I don't know what caused the morning, <laughs> you know, and to me, that's great. So that was something I pushed, but I have to say, I'm very impressed that Wizards has stood by it. You know, yeah. that no one ever did, you know, that they've, they've stood by, we're never going to reveal the, the cause of the morning because it is a very different approach from most of the other settings. Yeah. And I really think it, it works well. And like I said, it, it's interesting that it, it, it works even on a meta lo- level because mm-hmm. while the novels aren't, you know, canon, it's also, you know, it, that was something I encountered in 7C too, where there were things talking about how. This thing that happened 100 years ago, nobody's sure whether it happened this way or this way. And, and I think one of the things that's important is that when it first came out, when we were developing it, when I was working on the original idea, Eberron was certainly something created to balance against Forgotten Realms. Mm-hmm. Not in a sense of, oh, something Forgotten Realms does is bad in the sense of, oh, but it's doing it. You know, yeah. we've got that. And so the basic point is looking to novels as canon or not canon. What the Forgotten Realms approach does is says, we have these heroes in the world like Drist and Elminster that everybody knows, that these are famous figures that you know about, and oh my goodness, you can get to meet them, and isn't that cool? Mm -hmm. With Eberron, we specifically wanted this idea that in Eberron, your players are the coolest characters, and, and that there aren't bigger heroes who could step in and solve the problems. And so that's the basic point that what I wanted to say is, is my characters in my novel shouldn't steal the spotlight Mm -hmm. from the players in your story. And the players in your story should be the heroes of your campaign. And again, it's not that either approach is better. It's just saying it's a different idea. We really wanted to say this is a world in which the player characters are the heroes of this age. Mm Mm-hmm. Another thing that I thought was interesting um, when reading through Exploring Eberron is I've never seen the difference between divine and arcane magic expressed quite the way you expressed it. And it was essentially saying that arcane is a noble quantity, whereas divine magic is a mystery. How did you arrive at that functional definition? So first of all, uh, Eberron was built on that basic assumption that arcane magic behaves like a science that the whole idea is it is reliable, it's repeatable. A wizard can create a spell and can teach that spell to another wizard. And that given that, this is the, the foundation of civilization. You mm-hmm. know, This is the tool they use instead of the science we use. Yeah. But basically, to me, there's always that basic point of how is a wizard different from a cleric? And it's the essential idea that a wizard is someone who understands science. They are a scientist who has figured out if I say these words and make these gestures, a fire appears. 
The cleric is someone who literally just asks the universe for a favor and something <laughs> happens. And that they don't understand. There is no theory behind their magic. It is sheer, I have faith and I'm asking for something to happen and it does. And so for me, you know, as I said, a big part of that was just these are so different conceptually in their basic ideas that they should feel different. Mm -hmm. So part of what I suggested in Exploring Eberron is that it makes absolute sense that arcane magic works exactly as it does, which is 100% reliable, 100% repeatable, everything does what you expect it to do, but that you could consider having divine magic be a little quirky. You know, some of it is just that idea that every now and then you could have something like I call down a flame strike and that one guy doesn't get hurt because he's not, you know, he's, he's a holy man or whatever. Yeah. You shouldn't be able to hit him with your holy fire. <laughs> but that kind of thing, I'd still want to be pretty darn rare because again, you don't want to frustrate players. Uh, and you know, the turnaround on it is saying, oh, I'll actually throw in a couple extra dice of damage on there because you are literally attacking the greatest enemy of your faith. Mm -hmm. But as I said, that kind of thing, I, I tweak up a little, but I've definitely thrown in the suggestion also of ideas of things like divine visions. Like saying, if your cleric is walking through a town, you might just say, hey, you see a beggar over there. And for just a moment, you see a burning crown over his head. And part of the point of that to me is, and what does that mean? You don't know. Because that is that sort of idea with divine magic is it doesn't come with an instruction manual. It's not scientific. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, there is a force sending you a message. What does that message mean? I don't know. <laughs> you know, but uh, but I like that idea of really trying to remind people that clerics aren't scientists, that their power comes from an unknown, mysterious force. I think it's a god. I think it wants me to do these things. But that's really about faith, you know, so. Oh, yeah. And it's it's funny because this is an ancillary you know thing to the questions. But as I was reading through there, I hit the point where I read you know, that there are clerics of the Draconic Prophecy. And I was like, mm -hmm. I never thought of that before. Oh, I played one. Now it was a lot I want to play one. <laughs> yeah. and, and again, it's a lot of fun because you, um, you know, to me, it's, it's perfect for those moments of when you're going to cast the healing and you can just say, you are, you know, this is not your day to die <laughs> because I know when it will be. It's going to be next, you know, June 21st, <laughs> 2022. Um, but... But yeah, as I say, I, I, I played a character because I also talk about having crisis of faith and like the fact that don't feel that your, your cleric has to be stuck on one path. Mm -hmm. uh, that actually is based on a campaign I played in where I actually started off in a fourth edition game playing a paladin essentially of the Sovereign Host. Mm -hmm. And sort of halfway through the game, I wasn't really you know, liking the class. I wasn't really feeling invested in the character. And, you know, working with the game master and sort of playing that out in the game, I ended up becoming a cleric of the Deuteronic Prophecy mm -hmm. and just sort of saying, oh, no, I've seen, you know, that the sovereigns are just sort of this, this distant concept. This is the real underlying truth <laughs> and had, you know, so much more fun with the character. Yeah. But also it was fun to actually have that be the sense that, oh, my character has has had a fundamental revelation. Like he has changed his view on how the universe works. And that was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is the expanded information on goblinoids in exploring Eberron 
really gives them a depth that usually only the more traditional long-standing cultures in D&D have gotten. Um, would you like to talk through your thought process on this? Well, this was something that we we wanted to do, you know, with Eberron from the beginning is Eberron did all the way back, you know, in 2004, we we came in with the idea that you should not have mortal races be tied to particular alignments that you shouldn't just have orcs are evil mm-hmm. uh, that that just wasn't part of the theory of the world yeah and that magical creatures undead you know celestials things like that okay they are bound to alignments because they aren't natural they don't yeah. have a choice but that whether it's a dragon a goblin or a human that they aren't innately anything you know they choose a path with that in mind, the idea came out that, uh, you know, evolved that Corvair, the continent that most action takes, you know, begins on, mm-hmm. was originally the land of the goblins and the orcs. And that the goblins had a very advanced civilization that was very different from the civilization of modern Corvair, that they mm-hmm. didn't use arcane magic, that they had these different paths, but still a very advanced, successful civilization that ended up being destroyed by a extraplanar invasion and that then humans came in and and took all their stuff basically and part of the point of that was to say we're not trying to completely change every concept of D&D we will keep the idea that there is animosity between humans and goblins but that is not because the goblins are evil mm-hmm. it is because the humans have taken all their stuff that the, yeah. the goblins essentially, frankly, in, in my opinion, humans in Corvair are on the wrong side of history, that the goblins have every right to be angry against them. Mm-hmm. And so we always like this idea that, again, the goblins, their, their prior civilization was in certain ways more advanced than what humanity has today. And that then this added this element of, oh, and there are small forces of goblins who have maintained those, that civilization. Mm-hmm. That essentially when the, the Dalkir were essentially spreading this curse that was what was destroying the civilization, they essentially threw themselves into fallout shelters and waited it out. And then yeah. now they're coming back. And so we've always had that idea that you have these Takani goblins who are just much more disciplined, advanced, and dangerous than, you know, even, you know, modern civilization. But we've never had a chance to really get deeply into, well, what is their civilization like? How did it differ from mm-hmm. modern civilization? What kind of tools did they have available? And so that's one of those ideas. Again, it was part of the setting from the very beginning but we've just never really had a chance other than a couple of articles to really talk about who were the Takani goblins and what was their civilization like. So we have a big section in exploring everyone about that. Yeah. I particularly liked the section on the, uh, the, the dream of the empire that mm-hmm. the uh, goblins mm-hmm. share. That was a really nice touch. I well, like that. Yeah. So, so to throw that out for just a moment, you know, part of the idea of it is that what we say in the, the book, you know, the, the history that is established is that the Takani Empire lasted for thousands of years, which is a very long time for a civilization to last. And we'd also sort of thrown out the idea that the Takani goblins, at least, very much tended to be a sort of lawful direction, to be very structured, to be very hierarchical. 
Mm-hmm. And especially since in Eberron, we have the plane of dreams, we explore dreams in interesting ways. To me, it was this idea of we, we had said that the founder of the empire was an epic bard and that bardic magic was, was a, an important part of Takani culture. Uh-huh. And to me, that idea of, okay, epic bard, she is bringing together six kings. How'd she do it? And this idea of saying, well, what if she gave them a united dream? Because mm-hmm. that's really what any kind of society is, is yeah. a shared vision. And we're saying, well, what if that's literal? What if she bound them all to this shared dream? And that is how even today, you know, thousands of years after the empire fell, these descendants of it have maintained its traditions and values because they're still tied to the dream. Mm-hmm. And so it's a way to sort of have that idea of not exactly a hive mind, because they're all individuals, but just saying, but they have this shared, their culture is essentially given to them every night. You know, they have this shared foundation that reinforces their ideals and their values. And it's still a dream. You know, it is still that idea that they don't remember everything perfectly, that they, they add their own experiences to it, but it's setting this basic, these are the things we believe. So I really enjoyed that. And Part of the point to me is I I always wanted to avoid that sort of like this culture is evil or this thing is that. Yeah. But I also really like the idea of saying, but let's not forget that non-human species aren't human. Yeah. You know, that just because we're saying goblins aren't evil doesn't mean that goblins should just be humans with green skin. Mm. That it's much more interesting to say, how are they not human? And this idea of saying, okay, well, imagine they all share dreams. You know, what would that do? What kind of culture would that create? Yeah. And with all of the races of, uh, you know, species of Eberron, I should say, that's sort of that idea of I'm always trying to focus on what makes them not just humans who are short or humans who have pointed ears, as opposed to leaning more towards everyone's basically human. <laughs> now, on the topic of uh, cultures, I've always been a fan of dwarves, but I also like when a setting can make dwarves feel like dwarves, but also give a unique twist on them. Mm-hmm. And what I really like in that you've introduced here is some of the spins on the dwarves and their relationship to the aberrations that they've been fighting with. So would you care to expound on dwarven symbiont fashion? <laughs> yeah, certainly. Uh, basically dwarves with the different races of, you know, species in Eberron, we, we, most of them are quite different from the sort of traditional fantasy norms. So, you know, you got halflings riding around on raptors and things like that. The dwarves traditionally were the closest to sort of classic fantasy. They were miners and, you know, stoic. And a lot of people were like, hey, they just don't seem that exciting. And the main thing we were doing with them, with them when Eberron began was emphasizing the point of because they're the miners, because they're sitting on the greatest resources, mm-hmm. that they're essentially oil barons, that you know, yeah. they they have power because of their resources, you know, sort of outsized to the actual size of their nation or their military influence. They have great economic power. And that was that's a cool idea, but it doesn't necessarily translate across to the player character. Mm-hmm. You know, and so when we were working on Rising from the Last War. James Wyatt, Jeremy Crawford, and I, that was one of the things where we're like, okay, well, what can we do to make the dwarves more interesting, 
without completely, you know, none of us wanted to like completely rewrite them or ignore existing canon. Mm-hmm. But we had always said that much like the goblins, there was an advanced dwarven civilization in that period of history that was destroyed by the Dalkir, the creators of aberrations. And in third edition, we just basically said, and it was completely wiped out. And now it's just a source of dungeons. There are dungeons down below the Moorholds where you might find stuff if you want to poke around. So with Rising and 5th edition, we just said, well, okay, hold up. What if you took that and said, and they did go down and poke around, and they discovered that the aberrations were still there, and that we have this active, I like to think of it as the movie Aliens, but if you just said, but it's ongoing, it's not, and then you run away, it's that they're, they're still down there. And so that you have this sort of ongoing war between the dwarves on the surface and the aberrations below. And then the next step to that was we'd always had symbionts, the idea of sort of living tools created by the Dalkir. And so we said, okay, following Eberron's general principle, which is whether it's magic, whether it's psionics, it's about if you had tool X, how would you incorporate that to civilization? With the dwarves, the next thing was saying, Okay, and what if some of the clans have basically reclaimed symbionts in this war and started using them and started adapting, you know, reverse engineering them and even making their own? Uh-huh. And so it was back to that point that we'd introduced symbionts all the way back in third edition, but we didn't do much with them. They were just yeah. those weird things the Dalkir had. And so this was, again, a chance to build on both the dwarves and the symbionts and say, well, here is a culture that is actively manufacturing and using these. And part of what was fun was to think about more things, like you said, fashion, of even just saying, okay, we've talked about living armor. We've talked about hungry weapons that, you know, are sort of organic weapons that can secrete poison or, you know, consume the blood of the person you're striking. But even just going to the idea of, okay, well, take a leather trench coat and imagine that, oh, it's alive. (laughs) And it actually bonds to your body. And in fact, it basically feeds off your sweat. (laughs) And then from there, you can say, oh, like that's, that's for them. That's a cloak of Elvenkind. It's a actual leather cloak that has chameleon factors and changes color. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, sure, that's reasonable. There are creatures that do that. (laughs) And that's part of what I talk about in the book is not just presenting new concrete uh, symbionts, some of which are conversions of ones from third. But also uh-huh. saying, just think about how we have the established magic items from the DM's Guide and all the other books that are out there. And part of what this book does is saying, instead of just giving you new things, take any of those items and stop and think about, but who made it and how does that affect it? So saying uh, Cloak of the Bat, sure, if it's just magic, it's just a, you know, if it's an Arcanics thing, it just does its magic thing. If it's a Dalkir thing, oh, it's bonding to your body and actually forming into leathery wings, <laughs> you know? And so to me, you know, I, I look forward to going even deeper into this, but it's just the idea of taking those clans and, and really thinking about what does it look like when you take your traditionally stoic dwarves and have them wearing their trench coats, you know, of living leather. And there are hungry axes and such. And that's just fun to imagine. Oh, yeah. yeah. One of the things that I really liked about that is you do have 
multiple clans that you spell out and you have mm-hmm. clans that are very much traditional dwarves and think this is a really bad idea yep. have clans that think well this will give us an edge and then you have other clans that are just like hey let's just use this for everything <laughs> yeah no and that was sort of the point of we always said there were 12 clans and part of it to me was this also makes them more distinct Mm-hmm. You know, are you a proud Moranin who thinks these things are abominations and is trying to rally folks to fight the Dalkir? Or are you a Narathun who thinks like this is fascinating and we've only scratched the tip of the iceberg of what we can do with this? Mm-hmm. And and to me, it's that the sort of dwarven warlock scientist who's like trying to breed new technology <laughs> is a really fun, very different take on things. I'll call out that when you look at the cover of Exploring Eberron, one of the characters in the uh, lower right, that's Rusty, who is a dwarf uh, warlock, who's what we call a ruin-bound dwarf. Mm-hmm. And ruin-bound is a reinterpretation of what were called Dalkir Half-Bloods, I think, mm-hmm. in third edition. And here it's a specifically sort of dwarven twist of saying that these are dwarves who have been essentially mutated by exposure to all of this conflict yeah, and sort of have innate bonds. You know, they each have a unique symbiont of their own and, and can bond two symbionts more freely. So Rusty there on the cover, you know, has a eye worm coming out of his back and, and a claw gauntlet on his, his right arm. And the big thing is he's wearing sunglasses and everyone's like, why, why are you wearing sunglasses, especially in a dungeon? And it's, it's because ruinbound dwarves have unusual mutations and it's basically saying, oh, oh, well, what's underneath the sunglasses? Because <laughs> maybe we don't want to know. <laughs> you know what? I mean, this is a complete side tangent here, too. But when you bring up Rusty, mm-hmm. I noticed you did something with Exploring Eberron that I haven't seen since third, and that is... There is kind of an I- iconic party that <laughs> pops up in various places throughout this uh, this product. Yep. Yeah, they're the Badgers. And we did develop, you know, sort of these concept of here's a party of six adventurers. And in fact, Hero Forge miniatures printed up a set of the, <laughs> the characters. And they're pretty fantastic. <laughs> even, even Rusty with his eye worm, they did a pretty good job <laughs> figuring out a way to do it. Uh, Rev, who's the, the Warforged, was the toughest one because like, he has a very unusual head shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they still did a pretty good job on him. And, <laughs> and yeah, and part of that was the idea of I always loved the iconic characters. And part of it was to give some consistency throughout the art. I write some little fiction pieces you know, at the start of each of the chapters that mm-hmm. touches on them. Uh, but also just in creating the characters, part of it was I was creating them so they do highlight the different aspects uh, of the book. Mm-hmm. So Rusty is a ruined-bound warlock with symbionts. Della is a maverick artificer. Ban is a Dakani goblin. And Gentle is a, a living weapon, which is a kind of monk. And and so basically everyone has, you know, sort of they're actually representing the book uh, as well as just being a fun group of characters. Right. So it also seems like a lot of D&D settings will mention that there are aquatic cultures mm-hmm. and that either gets developed last or it never gets developed. It's just something that's mentioned that this is something there. Would you like to talk about the aquatic cultures that are in Exploring Eberron? 
Well, the funny thing for, for me is actually with Eberron, they were one of the first things developed. Of, <laughs> it was actually when I submitted the original proposal to Wizards of the Coast, it included what we now see in the Thunder Sea, the idea of a powerful Suwaga nation of a sort of colonial sea elf nation where the, the elves of what is now Aranal have sort of mage-bred the sea elves to be able to govern uh, aquatic territories. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the merfolk is this sort of neutral, more nomadic third party. And, and to me, it was just basically that principle of D&D has always had intelligent aquatic humanoids. And it's always come to this. So if they're in many cases, like the Swagin in, in many editions are actually presented as being smarter than humans, mm -hmm. like superior to humans in all their mental stats. And part of it is like, well, then presumably they should have nations, you know, and if they have nations, then crossing the ocean is like just driving across someone's land. <laughs> like, how is that, you know, what is the impact of this? How are, what are yeah. the trade negotiations? What's all of this? So I wrote up like a basic sketch of this in, in the very beginning, and it just ended up being something where it was generally decided, Ugh, underwater adventuring is such a pain, mm -hmm. let's not worry about it. And so I've snuck little pieces of it into uh, City of Stormreach and into Secrets of Zendrick. But basically for this, I originally wanted to do all the oceans but everyone has 10 C's. <laughs> and, you know, since it's just a, a part of a chapter in this book, I basically said, well, let's just pick one, the Thunder Sea, yeah. uh, which is between Aranal, Zendrick, and Corvair. So to me, it's like, this is where you get the most traffic. And it's, it's sort of, it is to the oceans what Corvair is to the continents. So this is where I expect adventurers to spend the most time. Uh-huh. And so it focuses again on, as I said, you've got a, a very powerful Sawagan civilization. You have the sea elms of Aranal, who would basically colonize the region around Aranal. And then you have the, the merfolk as a more sort of nomadic neutral party. Again, what I've said is very much, this is, this is the cultures of the Thunder Sea. Other seas should be as different from this as different continents are in, in the rest of Eberron. Mm -hmm. And so this is not supposed to be the monolithic Suwagan culture that you will see everywhere. It is a particular Suwagan culture. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. And there, I know we could go on forever, but there are some really, really deep concepts in uh, that whole section. I see what you did there. Deep. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and, and, of course, the sea elves are pretty much just terrible they are yeah. the worst um although we do give some options for you can be sea elves from the other side of the island who aren't quite as quite as bad yeah and i really i really like that and i like that you know there were some bits about like the the travel lanes across and how that might interact so even if you don't want to do the full undersea campaign there's mm -hmm. still a reason for these cultures to interact with people that are just sailing across. Yep. And part of what we said, though, at the same time was that the Suwagin give that basically Corvair and the other nations, you get territorial waters up to three miles away and fishing up to, I think, like 20 miles away from your coast. Mm -hmm. um, so part of it is the idea of if you just don't want to deal with this, yeah. as long as you're staying on the coastline, <laughs> you know, you're fine. 
you know, so it's not like anytime you put your foot in the water, a swagon's going to pop up and grab it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a, an aspect of aquatic cultures that I haven't seen before where there's actually like territorial enforcement and agreements there. And I, I really like that. And and it's just part, I mean, I think that's generally part of Eberron is trying to have this idea that it feels a little more modern, if you will. It's not modern. I like to say it's more like right around the turn of the 20th century and it's mm-hmm. sort of overall development on many different levels. But still, it is that idea that if the Suwagan have a nation, we should be interacting with it like other nations. Yeah. You know, there should be diplomatic relationships and things like that. So when... Reading through the section on the planes, I could not help but picture a variant on a Planescape-style campaign mm-hmm. where the characters are just traveling between multiple planes for adventures. Mm-hmm. How would you frame being able to do that? Because you added a lot of information about the individual planes into this. Uh, so there's a lot of possibilities. So one of the things is that from the start, we decided with Eberron to create a unique planar cosmology that to that point, most things had really sort of inherited off the Great Wheel. And the Great Wheel was built in a particular way. Among other things, the original idea was very much with planes reflecting alignments. Yeah. And that's a concept, you know, that you had the alignment planes, you had the elemental planes, you know, and that there were were these particular things. And with Eberron, it was this opportunity to just come from the start and say, but what's another way you could break down planes? And that the planes are more about these iconic concepts, war, peace, life, death, you know, with the material plane as the place where all of these things converge. And that's Mm -hmm. what makes it the material plane. And so, first of all, I just wanted that chance to describe these in more detail, but not just as places you could go, but also in talking about all the different ways in which they could affect the world or an adventure. Mm -hmm. That what are artifacts like from Dolor? What you know, kind of creatures or spirits? What would bring them to Eberron, or where might you encounter them? What are story hooks? So you know, a lot of different ways that even without going to the plane, here's how it could affect you. Yeah. On top of that, Eberron has always had the idea of manifest zones and coterminous and remote periods, which are areas and times where the plane influences the world. And so once again, this was an idea to say you don't have to be a high-level character who can planar travel to have Kithri have some kind of interesting impact on your game. Mm -hmm. So in looking to the the question, there's two ways to do it. The one way is there are definitely certain places. It's very easy to, for example, pass through into Lamania or Thelanus through a manifest zone. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I've run adventures that have started with, you know, I ran a, a campaign that was essentially lost, where the players won an airship that passes through a manifest zone into Lamania um, and crashes. Uh-huh. And so now you're on this weird island that actually is in another plane, you know, <laughs> and so uh, a plane crash, if you will. Um, <laughs> anyhow, uh, on the other hand, you also have... Uh, if you don't want to go full Planescape and just connect things together, uh, you have in the plane of Serenia, you have the immeasurable market. And the immeasurable market is the idea that this is this sort of planar crossroads, where basically part of the point is Serenia is the plane of peace, 
it is a place that commerce is one of its aspects, the idea of people working together peacefully. And it's a plane where actually violence is difficult. And yeah. so part of the point is even as low-level characters, if you find a way to get to the market, it's one of the safer places to explore because combat itself is very scaled down. Mm-hmm. And so I would definitely, I could certainly imagine uh, running a campaign that's based with with the players operating out of, you know, a bar in the immeasurable market <laughs> that just has back doors to all kinds of interesting places. And uh, I think there's certainly some fun stuff you could do there. Oh, yeah. I, I personally want to run a jailbreak on uh, Don V. Oh, yeah, for sure. The, uh, the, the inescapable prison. <laughs> That just immediately when I was reading that section on uh, the prison layers, it was like I that that's just asking for a joke. No, and, and and that is of course why it's there is to say let's introduce the most you know high security prison in existence because of course that means someone's going to try to break it up. <laughs> so at this point, I was going to ask you: Are there any future volumes of Exploring Eberron coming up? Uh, I don't know. You know, part of the point was until last month, uh, it was a question of we didn't know how well the book was going to do. (laughs) And, you know, it did take us over a year to produce. It Mm -hmm. was a lot of investment into the art. We have 50 unique pieces of art in it, uh, along with some others. And we honestly didn't know where we going to, you know, get a return on that time and investment. And it certainly has done well enough that, yes, it was worth worth the time. And that, yeah, we know there's people who would like to see more. (laughs) I'm not sure I want the next thing I do to be another 240 page book (laughs) just because it takes a year, you know, and, and so I'll probably try doing a couple of smaller things first. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm certainly going to keep writing about Eberron with uh, KB Presents. And we have a couple of different ideas. I suspect we'll have something to announce within two or three weeks. We'll see maybe a month, just in terms of talking about what are we doing next. Mm-hmm. But right now we're still figuring out, you know, schedules, how much time I have and, and sort of what that might be. There's nonetheless many other parts of Eberron I would like to explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, just throwing out a couple in particular, all along the, the West Coast, we have the Eldine Reaches, we have the Demon Wastes. I've been running a campaign in uh, Kabara which is kind of like a fantasy Western. Mm-hmm. And I love that campaign. And, you know, I'd love to sort of share some of, of that concept. And so, as I say, there's lots and lots of different things we could do. It's really just a question of time and interest. I also do just, you know, minor plug. I have my website, keith-baker.com, keith-baker, mm-hmm. that I have been uh, posting articles on for a long time. And I... A poll my Patreon supporters, you know, for topics. And so I will probably continue there to basically be looking to the supporters to sort of get a sense of what do people want to see. Is there any uh, chance that you would want to do an adventure that is more along the scope of some of the fifth edition adventures that Watsi has put out? I don't think it is something that I will do. And the reason for that is my style of running adventures is very sandboxy and uh, improvisational. 
Um, and that's just how I like to do it. So I love like basically saying, well, I'm running an adventure that is set in this village on the edge of Kabara, and what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And then I'm just going to follow sort of the path you end up taking. Mm-hmm. And so I'll have directions. I know like what are the forces out there that are going to mess with you and things like that, but I'm not trying to plan it all out in advance and get you to follow that particular path. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, writing adventures isn't, in my opinion, my greatest strong suit. Because like I said, I tend to to be very flexible on mm-hmm. on how I do it. And that doesn't necessarily translate well for someone who prefers to have things spelled out very concretely. Mm-hmm. With that said, I have worked in the past with Across Eberron on the DMs Guild, uh, did a adventure path called Convergence Manifesto. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, a great chance of them getting together and doing a second adventure path there. And that's something where I've worked with them on it and, and think they've done a great job. So basically, I think I will continue to be involved with ongoing <laughs> adventures for Eberron. Uh-huh. I don't think it's the product that I'm going to make personally, but who knows? You know, we'll see. <laughs> On that note, um, outside of Eberron, are there any projects that you want to talk about that you might have coming up in the future? Um, well, let's see. I mean, the the big one that's coming up in the relatively near future is the Adventure Zone Bureau of Balance, which is a cooperative storytelling game that Together Studios has created with the McElroy brothers. Mm-hmm. And it's something I'm very happy with. It's very much some people would say, oh, wait, isn't the Adventure Zone game Dungeons and Dragons? Because the Adventure Zone is admittedly a podcast in which they play Dungeons and Dragons. But at the same time, they kind of play Dungeons and Dragons. But it's really <laughs> about the building a fun fantasy story together with your friends. Yeah. And that's what we've tried to do with Bureau of Balance is basically make a game that this is something you can play with your two friends who like the idea of Dungeons and Dragons, but have never played it. Mm-hmm. That the emphasis is on we've got an hour and we want to have build a fun story yeah. together. And so it draws a little bit on gloom, which is, again, that idea that there's a concrete mechanical foundation. But what's really fun is the story you tell on top of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bureau of Balance draws a little deeper into that concept of, you know, making the story a more concrete part of the game than Gloom does. But there's some aspects of that. But basically, as I say, to me, it's it's GMless. And it's something where if you want, you know, to have a bit of an adventure with some friends, but you don't want all the work of uh, putting together D&D, it's a great easy way to just, you know, Let's go raid the Lich's cave for the to get the ring uh, in an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm excited about that. I expect that's going to be out probably at this point in October. Uh, it's it's printing now, but you know how long things take. Yeah. <laughs> Aside from that, uh, Exploring Eberron just came out, and then beyond that, it's basically the I'm I'm working on a bunch of things uh, <laughs> that'll be coming out. I'll throw out just as a random. Uh, I don't think I mentioned this to any anywhere else. I have been playing D&D with the band Magic Sword, and we've done a couple streams. We did one for Gen Con, and we did another one before. And I've actually written a small PDF product that will be coming out on the DMs Guild that is based on that campaign. That's just a sort of here's the the story hooks if you wanted to work the idea of the magic sword into your campaign. And that'll be coming out in a couple of weeks. (laughs) 
All right. That is wonderful. Well, I don't want to risk getting thrown in the uh, stew pot for going Mm -hmm. too long, but this has been a really fascinating discussion here. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you being on the show and thank you again for coming on. And this has really been great to talk to you. This show is funded by the Gnomes Do Patreon. You too can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnomes Do website to the Gnomes Do Patreon. If you're enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many of the other misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Down with D&D, Teos Abadia, and the mad wizard Sean Merwin dish about everything D&D, with a focus on the brand and the newest edition of the world's most popular RPG. I think right here I'm supposed to ask if I avoided the stew? But I'm all alone here. So alone. Surely no one would sneak up on me and put me in a stew pot when I'm all alone. Right? Gnomecast is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs.